Well, welcome uh, tonight to RUF. Uh, if this is your first time, my name's Elliot Everett. I'm the RUF campus minister, and we're just uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, RUF, we uh, our large group on Wednesday nights. So it's time for us to come together and uh, sing and worship together, and then come uh, to God's Word. Uh, and the reason that we come to God's Word is because uh, we want RUF to be a, a safe place for the convinced and unconvinced alike to come and examine the truth claims of Christianity. And we do that by going to God's word, which we believe to be his very words uh, speaking to us. Uh, We've been going through the gospel of John this semester, um, specifically honing in on the I am statements of Jesus. And tonight, we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, looking at Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. So your handout, your Bible, or Uh, If it's up on the slides, I don't know. Read with me here. We're going to start in verse 17 of John chapter 11. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
You skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they, the Jews, made plans to put him to death. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us your spirit. And Father, that the power and the truth of your gospel would take root in our hearts, that your grace would come alive, that your mercy would be real, that we would know that you are indeed the resurrection and the life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am uh, indebted once again this week uh, to Pastor Brian Habig and uh, Redeemer uh, Downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and his uh, insights on this passage. Um, there's just some things that you cannot come away with, come, come away from in life, and re- put a bow on it. There's just some things that you can't dress up and put on a smiley face with, right? There are things that we encounter in this life. They move us. They move us in ways that we don't really know how to deal with them. But you know, like the American way, the way that our culture has dealt with these things, tornadoes, hurricanes, um, all different, you know, Newtown shooting, any of these things, usually the way that the American way of dealing with things is just to kind of get on with it when things go wrong. And, and sometimes that's good with maybe natural disasters. What we usually do as Americans is we pick up the pieces and we build it back bigger and better than ever. Um, Ground Zero in New York City is, is a prime example of this. Okay, they tore down our two tires, towers, so we're just going to build this monstrosity in its place. And it's going to be bigger and better than it was before. So we're good at, at maybe moving on and, 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 and recovering, if you want to call it that. But one thing that I think that we do not do so well is pausing and reflecting. We don't do so well at pausing and dealing with pain and grief because I think in a lot of ways we'd rather just move on. When we, we come to this passage in John, uh, it's very near uh, the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to go into Jerusalem for the last time uh, before, his resurrection, uh, before his death and resurrection. And it's um, the subject matter here. It's just providence that we end up landing on this right before Easter. But here we have Jesus walking into a context of death. The death of his close friend. A death that affected many around him. For, for a head of a household uh, to die in those days was a big deal. It was a big day for, deal for his immediate family. He's got two sisters now that don't have a, a man to take care of them. Uh, there's a community now that's lost a head of house. It was a, it, was a, it was a big deal, and it's also a personal friend of Jesus. So this is a context that Jesus is walking into of deep pain and loss and weeping and wailing. We talked last week about how Jesus is the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, Jesus gives his sheep what they need. Well, what we see in this passage is that the good shepherd comes into a context of grief, and he gives his sheep what they need. And what they don't need is for Jesus to come in and just kind of put a stamp on it and say, hey man, everything's going to be all right. He doesn't do that. He comes in, and he lets it saturate. He deals with the pain and the grief. It moves him. He is broken over the situation that he finds here at Bethany and the death of his close friend. You know, he doesn't, what I would like to say, he doesn't, he doesn't Romans 8.28 stamp it, right? That, that, you know, it's okay, my father's gonna work it all for good. That is an amazing, powerful, deep verse that none of us will ever fully comprehend, right? But Jesus doesn't just kind of hallmark card 
some post-it note Bible verse out there for them. He comes in and he meets them where they are in their place of grief. We need to make sure that we are not wielding this kind of smiley face stamp in such a way that what we're actually doing is just trying to skim over the messiness of our lives. Because Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't come in and give us triumphalism, this kind of false, excessive optimism. He deals with it. And he ends up giving us triumph in the end. But before we can get to the triumph of the situation, we have to deal with the reality of tragedy. And that's the first point tonight. Jesus does not come into this context and say, no worries, I got this. He grieves, he weeps, he recognizes that this situation is not right. He embraces the reality of the tragedy. And we see that in two ways. Uh, The first way that we see uh, that he embraces the reality of this tragedy is his rage. Okay, you may be thinking, well, I'm reading through this and I don't get angry or yell at anybody. So what am I talking about? Look at verse 33 and verse 38. We get this phrase, John tells us that when Jesus kind of surveys the situation, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, we find that phrase, if you didn't know, the New Testament was written in Greek. That phrase in Greek is also found elsewhere in Greek literature to, to talk about the snort of war horses. Okay, what in the world would that be? I, I think we know exactly what this is. It's those moments that you are so sad or so angry or even so happy that the only thing that can come out of you is a sound. It's kind of that... You know, everybody gets that, right? Maybe it's when you're studying for finals. I don't know. Maybe it's something trivial. Um, But it's just, it's those moments when the only expression that you can give is a sound from deep within. Jesus is moved. He's upset. But what is he upset with? Is he upset with the people? No, he's being sensitive. He's trying to meet them where they are. He wants them to be comforted. He prays for them. He asks God that they might believe um, through this situation. What we see is that through the Gospels, Jesus gets most upset when he comes face to face with the physical manifestations of how broken our world is. When Jesus encounters brokenness, he is moved. He is not okay with it. He is not ignoring it. He knows it, and he's moved by it. I don't know if you remember this, in in Mark's account, of the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that Jesus goes across the lake and the crowd literally sprints all the way around the lake to get to where he is on the other side because they can't get enough of this Jesus. And Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is moved by our brokenness. Jesus is moved by our frailty. Jesus is moved by the fact that we are not what we were created to be. Here's a man that Jesus loved, meant a lot to his family, his community, and his loss hurts, and Jesus recognizes that, and he's moved by it. The second thing we see uh, of Jesus embracing the reality of tragedy is in his tears. It's every kid's favorite Bible verse, right? Jesus wept. Everybody knows that Bible verse, I think. Um, and we think, you know, you know, that's so sweet. Jesus kind of got choked up, you know, during this sad situation. 
But that, 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 that word wept there, it doesn't necessarily mean a, a loud wailing, but it does mean a steady flow of tears, a, a, a type of kind of maybe chest up and down type of crying. We all know this, right? Um, there's not many times that I have boohooed during a movie, but there's one time I'd made the mistake of watching this movie by myself. It's the movie The Green Mile, okay? Um, I watched this movie by myself, and sorry to ruin it for you, but Basically, it's about this big, burly, innocent man with the heart and mind of a child. And he gets executed for a crime he didn't commit. And you know he's, and he's going, he's deathly afraid of the dark as he's going to the electric chair. And I sat there as he's going and he tells, he tells Tom Hanks plays the jailer or whatever that leads him to the electric chair. And he says, you know, basically don't put the bag over my head. I'm scared of the dark, boss. And I'm sitting there watching this innocent burly, loving man being put to death. He doesn't even really understand what's happening to him. And I fell apart. It was just just like, (gasps) it's like, I I mean, it was, and the reason that I cried, I mean, I bawled like a baby at the end of this movie because you're sitting there going like, somebody has got to come in and stop this. This is not right. It's so wrong. I was overwhelmed with how wrong and the injustice of that situation. So think about this. That is Jesus' response to the situation. He weeps. He weeps at the brokenness of death and its effects in the people around him, the brokenness of this world as it's manifested itself in the death of this man. He weeps. That's his response to the situation, even though he knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to call this man out of the cave. Yet, he still comes into the situation and weeps at the brokenness of it. Both of the sisters say to him, Lord, if only you'd been here. And he doesn't say, well, you better step back because this is going to be awesome. He doesn't say that. He weeps with them. Our shepherd to his sheep weeps with them. And we're commanded to do the same. Scripture commands us to do the same. Romans 12, Paul says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In Ephesians 4, Paul says this really weird thing. He says, be angry, but do not sin in your anger. What Paul's acknowledging is there are things in this world that are not right that you should not be okay with. Just make sure that you do not sin in those situations. The echo of the Bible, of the New Testament especially, is that there is something wrong. This world, you and me and everyone around us are broken. And there are people around us every day that are broken in ways that we cannot even imagine. Or maybe that's you. You're broken in ways that no one in your life has any clue about. We know this all too well. We know what it is to hurt, to struggle. And I want you to see what, G- what John is telling us here through this re- account is that Jesus is not okay with it. He's not. And he's gonna do something about it. That's the point. A little bit further about before we move on is uh, you think about the problem of evil. The problem of evil has probably become one of the more uh, popular 
philosophical objections to Christianity. This thought that you know, the Christian Bible gives us this all-good and all-powerful God. And people say, I cannot believe in an all-good and all-powerful God that allows evil and suffering to exist. Right? The problem of evil. So how could there be this all-good, all-powerful God with evil and suffering in the world? So we can't go into all the ins and outs of answering that tonight, but suffice it to say, suffice it to say this. Whether you believe in the God of the Bible or not, there is still the problem of evil. You still have to deal with it. And only in Christianity do you have a God who came to this earth deliberately to put himself on the hook of human suffering. He was intentional about it. He didn't ignore it. He did not know what it was about. He came to experience and take it on himself. So think about that a little bit, and that's what we're, gonna, we're, we're approaching here on Friday, is remembering the fact that Jesus came, and he came to go to the cross, right? But think about how Jesus fared on his way to the cross, okay? And, and maybe compare that with some other martyrs in history. Um, just a couple of stories here. In 1555, in England, there were two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake in Oxford, England for their faith. And the story goes that they were tied side by side and as the fire uh, was being lit at their feet, history records Latimer as saying this. Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall by this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Can you imagine saying something like that? As fire is being lit beneath your feet. Around the same time, two men, John Bradford and John Leaf, same thing as the fires being made ready, history records Bradford saying to Leaf this, be of good comfort, my brother, for we will have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. Wow. How does Jesus compare to that? Well, in Gethsemane, what we see is as Jesus begins to get a foretaste of what he is going to experience in the, on the cross, He's quaking. In fact, he can't even stay on his feet. He falls prostrate on the ground. One commentator says this, that in Gethsemane, Jesus came to be with the Father for a time before his betrayal, but he fell hell. He found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Why? Why is that? Well, in John 1, if you remember, What John told us in John 1 is that Jesus as the eternal word of God has been in the bosom of his father for all eternity. He's the one by whom all things were created. Jesus the son has been with his father, had his father's love for all eternity. So what was he going to experience on the cross? The loss of what he had known for eternity. So how does that help us make sense of evil and suffering in our brokenness? It's this. Jesus' death was completely different than any other death that has ever been. It was not more gruesome necessarily. There have been more gruesome deaths than hanging on a cross. But Christianity alone among the world religions posits that God himself became fully human. Therefore, that God knows firsthand despair, rejection, pain, and suffering. The cross is not about physical suffering, though it does play a part. It's about the cosmic rejection that Jesus experiences from his Father. 
a father whom he'd known for eternity. Why did he do it? The Bible tells us that Jesus was on a rescue mission, but not just for you and me, but for all of creation. He paid for our sins so that one day he could fully and completely end evil and suffering without at the same time ending us. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Why does this good God allow suffering to continue? Well, the cross does not specifically tell us why, but it tells us what the answer cannot be. The answer cannot be that he does not love us. And the answer cannot be that he does not know. Because at the cross, both of those things came to be fully expressed in history for our sake. He takes on our misery and our suffering. He takes that so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. That's the reality of tragedy. And that's the reality of how this God deals with it. But here's the thing, the story does not stop there. It does not stop there. Second thing we see is the reality of triumph. So you see, I think God knows that we need something more than knowing that he knows our suffering. We have this undying need to know that our suffering is not meaningless. It's what we're always searching for. Where, where's the silver lining? What's, what's the meaning behind this? Leo Tol- Tolstoy, he puts this sentiment perfectly in his work, uh, A Confession. He says this, my question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without answer to which one cannot live. And it is this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death that awaits me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death that awaits me does not destroy? Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, and that can be the only thing that could ever come close to answering that question for us. Jesus says he's the resurrection and life. In verse 27, we get Martha's uh, confession of faith here. Uh, She says, I know, I believe that you are the Christ. That's not his last name, uh, Jesus Christ. Um, It's amazing how many people have said they grew up in church thinking Christ was his last name. When, he said, when she says you are the Christ, she's saying you are the king, you are the anointed one, you are it, you are the long expected king, you are the one that comes and fulfills what all the others anointed did and said. You are the definitive prophet, you are the definitive priest, you are the definitive king. That's what she's confessing about Jesus. And we see actually all three of those come together here and in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Think about Jesus being the king. What more of a demonstration of power could you have than one who overturns death? The enemy that has defeated every other king ever. Do you find it interesting that when Jesus faces the tomb, he says, Lazarus, come out. The implication is, is there that had he not called Lazarus by name, all of the dead would have gotten out of their graves. We have this man here, four days dead, in his burial clothes, walking out of the tomb. Can you imagine that sight? What, what would that have told you? I think it would have told you this. This king does not mess around. He came to conquer, and he conquers death itself. 
He conquers evil and suffering. He turns those things on their head. And the reality of his resurrection, it completely changes everything. So much so that as we find the Jews, the Jews that hated Jesus trying to deal with what happens here, they come to the conclusion, the only conclusion they can come to is that they need to kill Jesus and Lazarus because they know that it will change everything. And he's so in control that even that is working into his hand and what is gonna happen to him over the next week or two. Think about Jesus being the priest. To be the resurrection of life, Jesus had to die. You see, priests were very accustomed to killing animals, right? Sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifice. But no priest ever had been the sacrifice. Jesus not only is the one to administer the sacrifice on our behalf, he is the sacrifice on our behalf. That is why he is the definitive priest. And when they killed him, it did things that you cannot imagine. It took away the sins of his people and God would look at them never again. It broke the power of sin in people's lives. Paul puts it like this in 2 Timothy 1. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. He did away with it. It is done. Finally, he's the, he's the ultimate prophet. Prophets speak what God wants you to know. I want you to catch what Jesus says to Martha here in 23. He says, your brother will rise again. And she's thinking, yeah, I know that he will rise at the resurrection. You see, at the time, Jews believed in a resurrection, but they had no concept of an individual resurrection. You've got to understand this. As people have made excuses for how the story of Jesus of Nazareth rising from the dead, how that developed over history, one of the popular ones is that the, uh, the disciples were so distraught that they begin to focus on what Jesus said and they begin to feel him being with them in spirit. And so the story of him rising from the dead and being with them uh, arose and then went on through history. But you have to understand, an individual rising from the dead would have made no sense to a Jew back then. The only concept of resurrection they had was a corporate resurrection of all the people of God at the end of time. She says, I know that that's gonna happen and he'll be there. And then Jesus says this, He doesn't say, okay, well, wait, let me teach you about resurrection. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, I find this amazing. He says at the end of that, in verse 26, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is Jesus' question to everybody in light of the resurrection. Person. He cannot just be a good teacher. He cannot just be someone that I should emulate. You come to this Jesus, and there is only one question. Do you believe this? If Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the dead, it changes everything. And even for the skeptic, do you at least wish that it was true? Let me end with this. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus' death and resurrection are not just so that you and I can go to heaven one day. Shane Wheeler, in his book, Briar Pratt's Gospel, puts it like this. Have you ever thought, why did Jesus raise 
Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Why raise Jesus from the dead and have him walk around for 40 days? Why not just take him up to heaven and start the whole thing there? Shane Wheeler's conclusion is this. The visitation of the resurrected Jesus signals us to the fact that a new reality has been unleashed in the world. And that reality is that of resurrection. It's no longer something that will happen one day. It's something that's power has been unleashed in the here and now. That is what he was showing his disciples that day. He comes to deal with the injustice, the brokenness, the evil, the suffering of this world. He comes to deal with it now and his power has been unleashed against it through the gospel. And we see proof of that in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, we get this picture of the end of all things. And what we do not see, we do not see people being taken out of earth and away off into heaven for eternity. What do we see in Revelation 21? We see heaven coming out of heaven and onto the earth. And we see this picture of restoration and renewal of all things. The biblical view of things is resurrection for all things. It's not just some consolation prize at the end of the rainbow. It's renewal. It's restoration. It's healing for the whole world. At the end of the return of the king in the book, um, Sam, Samwise Gamgee, he uh, wakes up in Rivendell after the whole adventure is done. He's been asleep for who knows how many days and he wakes up and he sees Gandalf there, whom he thought was dead. And he says this. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought that I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Christianity's answer to that question is an emphatic yes. Because of Jesus because of his sacrifice, because of the empty tomb, which brought life, hope, renewal, and peace into the here and now. There's only one thing that you're left with at that point is, do you believe this? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do pray that you would lead us to trust and know and experience the power of resurrection, that we would know that we who are in Christ died with him and we also have been raised with him and that we have been seated in the heavenly places. Father, we we pray that we would live in the reality of this resurrection power, that we would be agents of healing and renewal in a broken and dying world. Father, we cannot do this in and of ourselves. We need you. And not only do we need you, we need the power that brings the dead back to life. We pray that you would give this to us. We pray that you would show it to us in Jesus, we pray. Amen.